Father, thank you for this beautiful morning. Thank you for life, Lord, it's precious. This year has reminded many of us in fresh and sometimes painful ways how precious the gift of life is. God, I pray that you would comfort those who have come heavy-hearted, that you would increase even further the joy, Lord, of those who are rejoicing, and that in all of it, in good times and bad, through loss, Lord, and through success, all of it would cause us to love you and trust you more. Help us now pay attention to your word. Give me clarity of thought and mind uh, so that I can explain it, so that you, Jesus, will be heard through the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Good morning, Cross Point. Isn't this cool? We get to do this. Let me thank you again for a pretty incredible effort yesterday. Just when I think you good people have reached maximum awesomeness, you kick it up a notch. And last night was one of those nights. This front parking lot was absolutely filled uh, with cars. We had dozens and dozens of decorated cars. We have more candy than really should be allowed to be placed in a single location at one time. We had people all the way from uh, Torrance, all the way from Anaheim. I mean, really, I think we covered... Uh, most of two counties. There were kids here just having a wonderful time, and so many people thanked me personally for doing this, and I really didn't do anything but stand around in the laziest costume that anyone had ever seen. If you saw me, you know it's true. I really want to thank you for going out of your way, especially at a time like this. The people who gathered here, I think, felt the love of God through God's people. So thank you, thank you, thank you, Thank you to all of our volunteers, to Sandra Hills and Anna Brumbach, but really uh, those of us who who serve the church vocationally, you you understand the best we can do is pray and encourage and show the way you're doing the work of ministry. We're really nothing without you. We're just parts of the body with you. When the whole body pulls together the way it did last night, the results are simply extraordinary. So thank you. I also want to Yes, you can give yourselves a round of applause. Absolutely. God bless you, folks, and thank you. Your generosity has just been incredible. In a moment, I'm going to ask you a question about the pandemic, but let me just for a second tell you about what my own experience has been through it. Thanks to you, through your kindness and generosity, I'm speaking for myself and for my family, you've made being a Christian and being a Christian pastor in a pandemic really a a real oasis of blessing. This has been the most chaotic time of upheaval in anyone's lifetime. But you've made it easy, folks. You're so easy to pastor. You're so easy to teach the Bible to. Thank you so very much. Pastors, like anybody else in a vocation, we all talk to each other. Uh, I'm literally in touch. I've got these group chats going with pastors from literally across the country. Um, We're blessed. I mean, for one thing... Did you notice what's, what's going on here with the weather? Did you know that one of my good friends in New Hampshire had his trunk or treat in five inches of snow yesterday? So I sent him a picture. I got up early to get a little exercise, and it was 57 degrees and foggy, so I took a screenshot of my iPhone weather app and sent it to him and said, hey, pray for us. We have weather too. Uh, I think we're going to have to put up with this for about two hours before the fog clears and the sun comes out. And he, he says things that really no friend should say to another, especially any Christian friend. But it was just a reminder of, of how blessed we are. 
And tougher days may come, but I trust the Lord and I trust you as well that we're going to navigate them together. I'll just tell you one other thing about this. We're sitting here in a tent and I don't know what the weather is, 73 degrees, does that feel about right? Okay. Somebody can tell us for sure. How hot is it? 70. 70, even better, okay? Did you know that a church in Denver is meeting outdoors? In Colorado, the snow came early. And they had a congregational meeting. What do we do? Do we just go back online? Do we rebel? What exactly are we going to do? They, as a, as a congregation, decided to continue meeting outdoors. Now, Coloradoans are built a little bit different than most folks. Okay? They're built for the cold, and they have the gear to put up with it. They put up space heaters, and they're making it work. And I don't know this, Pastor, but I admire the tenacity of the congregation to continue to gather. And this is not a word of correction. It's just a word of encouragement, especially to those of you who have kids or anyone in your home and your life looking at you through this thing and trying to decide, as you decide, what to do about church. When you make attendance and involvement in a church a matter of convenience, the kids in your home, the young people in your home, the grandchildren who are watching that, they take that lesson to heart. So online gathering is a good compliment. I talked to two first responders, a police officer and a firefighter yesterday. They're saying we are primarily coming to church online because our shift moved and we have to. We're, we're attending church at, from the job as we're able if there's not a call. It's a great solution. It's a good compliment. Please be careful, pandemic or no pandemic, for the rest of your lives, those of you who have little kids and young people looking at you, if you communicate to them by going anywhere and everywhere except church in the pandemic, they're going to take the lesson to heart that church is a thing to be done if it's convenient. And if they learn that lesson, they'll take it much farther than you ever would have and that you would ever want them to. So stick with it. Remember, we're not living our faith for ourselves alone. We're living our faith for the next generation. People are listening. People are watching. People are learning. And sometimes, unfortunately, Christians are teaching some really sad lessons these days. As a reminder, with the the week that our nation is facing and all the tension and all the rumors in the air. Just like to remind you that God is still sovereign. Nothing ever does change and will change in heaven because of an election. God himself will continue to rule. And our commandment is to pray for governing authorities, to pray that we may be granted peace so that we can live godly, exemplary lives to set an example that will quiet people down who think poorly of us, to pray for those who lead us, whoever they may be, and to continue to show the fruit of the Spirit in all circumstances. One part of the fruit of the Spirit is patience. Anybody felt their patience tested through this thing? Patience is most needed when you're pushed to be impatient. Self-control is most needed and most remarkable and most notable when you're being pushed to lose it and to blow a gasket. Probably we all have. So if you do, if you blow a gasket, if you get out of the spirit and into the flesh through this thing, give apologies, confess that, own that, don't excuse it, 
Because what you excuse, people will learn to make excuses for themselves. Own it with God, own it with people, and get right back in step with the Spirit. And on the other side of this, I'm convinced we're going to be very happy with what God has done. Okay? Just a little pep talk before we open our Bibles. Now, open your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 18. And here's the question relating to the pandemic. If you'll open your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 18. I want to ask you, regarding the pandemic, how has it affected your relationship with Jesus? Because everything in life shapes and molds your relationships. Whether it's marriage or friendship or a work, uh, a work relationship with a colleague, everything that happens to you moves the needle on that relationship one way or the other. Relationships are never static. They're living things. They're always improving or, however slowly, they're also decaying. They're growing weaker. And we've been through a lot as a country, really, as a globe, as a church. We've been through a lot. Can I ask you, with the losses that you've suffered, with the pressures you've endured, with maybe the unexpected blessings that you've enjoyed, how are you doing with Jesus and all of has it made you more conscious of him, more grateful? Has it shown you how weak and frail you actually are and made you more humble to go to him? Or has it kind of stiffened you up and made you proud or resentful that you have to put up with so many of the circumstances that are driving so many people crazy? The reason I ask this question is because the travel stories, because Jesus is on a journey in Luke chapter 18, and beyond, earlier rather. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's on his way to Jerusalem actually to die. He alone appears to know it. He's going to spell it out for the disciples, but along the way, he's going to meet various kinds of people. Last week, if you were here in, in church or if you've read that part of the Bible, you may remember that a rich ruler came to him and asked him this important question. Good teacher, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus had a, a conversation with him that ultimately broke the young man's heart, and he walked away from Jesus. Jesus is now on his way, Luke is very specific to tell us, on his way to Jerusalem. He's going there for the last time. He's going there to be betrayed by one of his own apostles. He's going to be subjected to the mockery of a trial. He's actually going to be killed on the cross. And in all of these stories, here's the truth. Here's what Luke is trying to show us in this section of his gospel. There is constant pressure to not trust Jesus. It may come from within, it may come from the crowd, it may come from you, under, you believing that you can figure it out, whether you trust your success or your experience or your intelligence or your network or your family or your job or your money, whether you feel like you're going to be pressured to cave to peer pressure and quiet down about your Christianity. Everyone who's ever met Jesus faces pressure not to trust him. Look with me in Luke chapter 18. Let me show you what I mean. Luke chapter 18, verse 31. It says, And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. 
That's a big sentence. Let me tell you what it means. When Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, he's grabbing on to a messianic title. He's reaching back into the Hebrew Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, to the book of Daniel. The translators in English have helped you see this. They've capitalized Son of Man. That's a messianic title. Daniel had prophesied 700 years before Jesus was born that an actual human being, the Son of Man, there are many sons and daughters of humankind, but one that was utterly unique would come. He would fulfill everything Daniel and the other prophets had prophesied, and he was going to be the one to save and heal Israel. Now Jesus is saying, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man, in other words, I'm the Messiah. Everything the prophets said about me, everything written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. It's all going to happen. The scriptures that you've been, had, that if people have read to you and rabbis have explained to you from early adolescence, you're going to watch them fulfilled. Isaiah's prophecies, David's prophecies, Daniel's prophecy, Micah's prophecy, it's all going to be accomplished. It's all going to be fulfilled in real time right in front of you. And he makes it even clearer. One of my old professors regarding teaching said, always put the cookies on the lower shelf so the kids can reach them. And this is Jesus doing his literal godly best to make sure that they understood him. Look at verse 32. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles. Those are the Roman soldiers who were going to physically kill Jesus. That is Pontius Pilate who is going to, as a coward, preside over a mockery of a trial and condemn him even though he knows better. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon, and after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day, he will what? He will rise. There's everything the prophets ever said about Jesus, and what I want you to notice is the detail. Biblical storytelling, if you hadn't noticed, is lean. It's sparse. There's not many details. But Luke slows the narrative down and relays the words of Jesus. Jesus has gone into actual graphic detail explaining to them what's going to happen in Jerusalem. He's going to be handed over to the Gentiles. There he will be mocked. He will be shamefully treated. Men are going to spit on him. They are going to flog him as the Romans did before crucifying a man. And then they are going to literally kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. In other words, I'm going to be arrested. You're going to see me humiliated. You're going to see other men spit upon me. You're going to see me lashed. You're going to see my body torn under a Roman flogging. You're going to watch me die. And on the third day, I will rise. It's all there right in front of them. You understood it, right? You can even visualize a little bit because the language is so graphic and descriptive. Here's the question. Don't read ahead. How do you expect the disciples to take it? They love him. Peter just said in the previous passage, we've left everything to follow you. What do you think they're going to say? 
Stand there with them in the group of the disciples, these 12 specially selected. According to Mark 3.14, Jesus chose these 12 to be with him and to send them out to preach. There is none other like this group on earth. They know him better. They have shared countless meals. They have heard him laugh. They have seen his tears. They have seen his pain, the pain in his eyes. As he walks among the disease, they've seen the power of God as he commands nature. Now he, he, their master, is telling them, I am going to be brutally, graphically crucified and killed right in front of you, and I'll rise from the dead on the third day. What do you think they're going to say? What would you say? Would you try to talk him out of it? Peter did, remember? Peter actually, a little bit later, he's actually going to try to defend Jesus and show himself to be not much of a knife fighter. On this day, believe it or not, as clear as he made it, as available as he made this message, this promise of the future, look what it says in verse 34, but they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. After all this time, the disciples still don't understand Jesus. He's been telling them this. He's been showing them this. Now he's speaking as plainly as a person can. He's even describing the nature of the crucifixion and the things that surround it, and they don't get it. Why is that? It's because of the pressure to not understand and trust Jesus. At all times in your life as a Christian, and if you're not a Christian and you're considering Christ, if you're one of those, and there have been many, who have come to church, talked to a man after the first service who said, I'm anti-church, but I'm here. Okay? It's an interesting conversation to have between services. It's a good conversation. If you're considering Christ or you're trying to follow Christ, you need to understand there will be constant pressure not to believe him. There will be constant pressure not to trust him. Luke doesn't want to show you this at this point, but as I read other gospel writers, I can read, for instance, in the gospel of Mark that Jesus fed first a crowd of 5,000 and then a crowd of, of 4,000 when when it was all over, Mark goes out of his way to explain that the disciples did not understand what was happening, he says, because, here's the quote, their hearts were hardened. In other words, Jesus can be himself right in front of people, show them everything, act as he always does because he's unchanging, be his wonderful, faithful, loving, clear, kind self, and people won't believe him, not because he's not clear, but because they don't want to trust him. The disciples are caught in the grip of that. There is constant pressure not to trust Jesus, which is what makes the story that follows so surprising. Look in verse 35. As he drew near to Jericho... He's on his way to Jerusalem, he tells us, but he's passing through another city called Jericho. A blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And some of these stories are so familiar that you can kind of overlook that quick little story. I don't want to invite you not to move too quickly. 
I want to invite you to remember that we're talking about the first century in Israel where the majority of the population lived in poverty or an astonishing number of people in the Roman Empire were actually technically slaves. And consider the plight of a blind man who's sitting on a major thoroughfare begging. Some of you have had the privilege of going to Israel. American tourists who go to Israel almost always go around October if they can afford to pay a little extra because the climate is oppressively hot much of the year. There's no pavement. There's no modern conveniences. A man who is utterly blind is sitting by a highway listening and hoping that people he cannot see will have pity enough on him to give him money enough to live through another day. If you want to understand Bible stories, read slowly. Watch what you're being told. I've sat in this story for a little bit this week, and it's been hard on me because somebody I care very much about is slowly going blind. And almost every week we talk, it's just a little bit worse. And I can see the frustration, and I can see the impotence closing in on this lovely, lovely person as their sight disappears. So to try to enter a little bit into this man's experience in the comfort of my office, I just sat at my desk and closed my eyes really tightly for about 30 seconds and tried to imagine the plight of a man in the first century sitting by the side of a highway blind. How do you think he got there? Somebody must have taken him. Some family with no better prospects than he or some friend must have taken him by the hand to a spot where perhaps people would slow down a little more, maybe a bend in the road where he could be seen from both directions and set him down. And all day long he listens for approaching footsteps and hopes to hear the clink of a few falling coins at his feet and he wonders what they are. There's no telling what has happened to this man. Again, Luke isn't telling you any of this. I'm just helping you see how, how much of an outcast, how very helpless this man must have been. And in verse 36 we read, hearing a crowd go by, he inquired what this meant. All the days he sat on the road to Jericho, today's different because now it's not just a few passerby who he can tell are pretending not to see him because that's what people often do with beggars. If they're sighted, we don't make eye contact. We pretend not to see them. If they're blind, we don't even have to do that. We can just go by knowing that they won't see the indifference. This day, different. Lots of voices, lots of footfalls. It's Jesus, so there must have been shouting. There must have been demands. Maybe the religious are taunting. Certainly the needy and the hungry and the diseased and the desperate are calling out for Jesus to do what Jesus always seems to be doing and saving and healing people. So it says he inquired what this meant. They told him Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And Bible storytelling is always very lean. It's always very quick. So one of the things you want to do is slow down and watch for details and differences. Remember that in your reading. If you can look for the details and watch for the differences, that's really the heart of every biblical story if you slow down enough to appreciate it. 
The man asks a question. What's all the noise? They give a very simple, factual answer. Jesus of Nazareth is walking by. He's right in front of you. All that crowd, there's a man named Jesus. He hails from a town called Nazareth. He's walking by you. And I want you to see this is the difference. He cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Compare verse 37 and verse 38. Do you see a difference there? What did the crowd say about Jesus? He's Jesus of? They just cited his hometown. And if you know a little bit about the Bible, Nazareth, a good place or a bad place to be from? Not great. Not shameful, but of no particular importance. It's a backwater. It's the kind of place where people make jokes about being sorry to be from there. Or I can't believe, you know, for a guy from Nazareth, you're pretty, you're pretty well put together. We're really impressed with your achievements. They're just describing him. They're naming him. They're giving him his personal name and naming his hometown. The blind man said something different. Did you notice? He said, Jesus, what? Son of David. What's the significance? Again, the, cat, the translators are helping you see that this is a title. Just as Jesus called himself the Son of Man, the blind man is saying, Jesus, Son of David. What does that mean? Well, it means that he understood prophecy and that there was one who had been promised to David, the king of Israel, who had, by the way, many sons, but he was going to have one who deserved the title of the son of David, who was going to be the one who fulfilled all of those prophecies that Jesus had tried to explain to his disciples earlier. The blind man through the crowd, and you're going to see how they treat him in just a second, through the roar of the crowd is trying to raise the only instrument he has, the strength of his voice, to call out to Jesus and to signal to him that he, the blind man, believes what people are saying about him. That yes, Jesus is from Nazareth, but somehow the blind man has understood that Jesus is much more than a carpenter from Nazareth. He's actually the son of David. He's the one that's going to fulfill all of these messianic prophecies. Verse 39, and those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. Put it in your own words. What the crowd tell him to do? Shut up and harshly. They rebuked him. Why? Because that's a non-human sitting by the side of the in his cultural understanding, he's the least deserving and the most unworthy person in the crowd. You may remember on another occasion, the disciples and Jesus met another blind man and the disciples asked this extremely Jewish question of their day. Lord, who sinned for this man to be blind? Was it him or his parents? Ouch. Jesus said neither. This man is blind so that the glory of God will be seen in his life. The disciples don't understand Jesus. The crowd doesn't think that the blind man on the side of the road has even the right to a voice. And they tell him to shut up. Verse 39, but he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. There's desperation there. Unlike the rich ruler, this man can't go find Jesus by himself. 
anywhere he needs to go. Someone has to guide him by the hand and put him there, and he has to wait until another comes along and mercifully takes him home or to another safe location. This man understands I have one chance and one audience, and that's not just a carpenter's boy walking down the road. That's the one my parents taught me about. This is the one the rabbis have been promising and explaining when they read the prophecies. So he says, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. In other words, how do you get there, folks? Who brought him? The crowd. Here's something important. When it comes to making spiritual decisions, don't trust the crowd. Don't ever trust the crowd. There's always going to be pressure not to trust Jesus, and a lot of that pressure is going to come from the crowd. In the last three years, more than probably in the last six years before that, I've talked to more and more people who are in the workplace who are telling me that it is increasingly difficult to publicly be a Christian where they work. Even a simple thing like having a Bible on their desk or on their bookshelf behind the desk. Even simple things like religious jewelry that indicate Christianity. Even that now is getting a little bit of pushback, is getting a little bit of snark, is sometimes, in some, one case I was told, getting an email sent over to HR. The crowd in the years to come in our lifetime, barring major revival in the United States, the crowd more and more, the authorities, the institutions in the land more and more are going to tell you to not trust Jesus. Sometimes it might be explicit and hostile. Other times it'll be, a, be mere pride and condescension. Please take the lesson from a blind, poor man sitting on the side of the road. Don't listen to the crowd. Keep your eyes on Jesus because Jesus sees and believes something different about this man. Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Now, enter into this story with me. Do you think Jesus actually needs that question answered to understand what's happening here? Is Jesus trying to elicit information? What's he after? He's after the same thing with the blind man that he wants from you. He's trying to draw out faith. The crowd doesn't trust Jesus. They certainly don't understand him. The neediest man among them is screaming out, using a very specific phrase, trying to communicate to Jesus, I believe that you are who you claim to be. I'm the one. I believe that you're the one the prophets promised. The crowd only wants him to shut up. Jesus quiets the entire crowd down and says, bring the man who's shouting right here. And then he engages with the man as if he were the only one that mattered. What do you want me to do for you? He said, notice the detail, what do you call him? Lord, Lord, let me recover my sight. And that's not just politeness, that's wholehearted trust. That's what Jesus is always after. When this blind man calls Jesus Lord, he is saying a world of biblical truth. He's taking everything the prophets and the Psalms and the law of Moses had described about the Son of David, the Son of Man, the Messiah, the Savior. He's taking it all and compressing it into a single word. 
That word means master. It's not polite address the way this man is using it in this context. He's saying, Lord, I believe you're in charge of everything. I believe you're the one that the prophets spoke of, so I believe that you can do anything you want. And on the basis of your lordship and your authority, what I want is let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight, your faith has made you well. Now, what's this story about? Well, there's an old saying that there are none so blind as those who will not see. You see, ironically, and this is part of Luke's storytelling, he's telling you the truth, but he's doing it literarily, put, stacking these stories on top of one another to help the reader see that not everyone gifted with physical sight has spiritual sight. Apparently, those in the crowd can see Jesus the man, but they cannot see the Messiah. The rich young ruler who had, gone, who had come before, if you notice, and if you hear last Sunday, the story just before this, the way Luke arranged it, the rich ruler came to Jesus. He's wealthy. Another gospel tells us not only is he a ruler, not only is he wealthy, he's actually young. In other words, he has enough pull, he has enough juice to come to Jesus on his own and engage him in conversation. You may remember his question, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus walks him through some of the commandments, showing him his obligation to other people. The young man mistakenly, brazenly says in self-confidence, I've done all of that since I was a kid. And Jesus speaks to the last commandment he had not mentioned, saying, well, then go sell what you have. Give it away and come and follow me. And do you remember what that rich man just decided to do instead? He walked away sad because he was very wealthy. What Luke's showing you, the reason these stories are side by side, is he wants you to remember that the rich ruler walked away from Jesus on his way to losing everything. He physically walked away from Jesus. Jesus invited him to love money less and come follow physically after Jesus. He did the opposite and walked, I believe, since no more is told of him, he walked into eternity, losing Jesus, losing life, and eventually losing the money he loves so much. What is this man told instead? Jesus tells him in verse 42, your faith has made you well. What happened here is something different. The blind man gained his sight and followed Jesus on the way to having everything. You see, what Jesus is announcing to this man is not merely that he's going to recover his physical sight. The Christian Standard Bible translation translates this phrase a little bit differently to help you see the enormity of what's happening here. The translators in that Bible say, your faith has saved you. Because, look what this man does. Verse 43, immediately he recovered his sight. Why? Because Jesus is the Lord. Because Jesus does anything he pleases, and he always does it well, and he always does it in keeping with his own character, the character of God. Immediately he recovered his sight, and what did he do? He followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave what? That's why you can't trust the crowd. The crowd one minute is telling him to shut up and then they see something different and now they're praising God along with the blind man. Good for the crowd that they apparently changed their mind at least for a minute, but don't you dare trust the crowd. It's fickle. 
So whoever it is in your life, whether it's financial, whether it's familial, whether it's friendships, whatever pressure, including your own pride and your own self-understanding, whatever's keeping you away from trusting Jesus, don't listen to those voices. Keep your sight on Jesus and follow after him, praising God as this blind man the point did. The point of this story is that humble, persistent trust in Jesus reverses all sin and loss. This man's sins were forgiven. Not only was his sight restored, this phrase in this context announces to him something even bigger and grander than the recovery of his physical sight. He is not only regaining his sight, he's being given eternal life. And if you keep trusting Jesus, if you face down the pressure of the crowd and you keep humbly and persistently putting your trust in him, sin really will be forgiven and loss really will be reversed. We've had some painful losses in this pandemic through families in our church. They've lost loved ones. We've had memorial services for them. Those people died with their trust in Christ. Their sins were forgiven in life and someday what they have lost, it's all going to be turned around. As Jesus rose from the dead on the third day, he will also raise everyone who trusts him and give what he says he is. He's going to give eternal life. The people who live that life on earth and enjoy it later in heaven are the people who keep their trust in him. So I started by asking you how the pandemic has affected your relationship with Jesus. This much pressure, as much as we've faced with all that we've been through, and it's been different for everybody, and I understand that. I've actually talked to a very few and select people who seem to have enjoyed it, okay? Not many of those. For most of the rest of us, whether it's because of something that's happened to us or something that's happened to our loved ones, especially our children, it's been very, very difficult. And pressure like this always seems to raise up pride or to bring up humility. If you will humbly, persistently keep trusting in the Lord, if you'll keep shouting over the crowd for the Lord, you're going to live what this man did. The challenge is to keep seeing and trusting him. See, none of us knew. Remember New Year's Eve, almost a year ago? And so many people said, this is my year. And a bunch of guys like me, pastors, came up with these goofy sermon ideas called 2020 vision, right? We're going to have 2020 vision in 2020. None of that has panned out. It all turned out to be a bunch of misguided hope the pandemic has taught us nothing else. It's actually taught us how frail we are and how little we actually control. But listen, you can spiritually keep your sight on the Lord who's in charge of everything, who always has time for mercy, who answers a crowd telling a helpless man to shut up. Jesus will quiet the crowd instead and say, you who are telling him to shut up, would you bring him up here instead? What is it that you want? Here's the key moment. Lord, in other words, Jesus, you're in charge of everything. Could I have my sight? Yes. In fact, your trust in me has saved you. See the picture of that man 
once helpless, following after the Lord, praising him, see his influence on the crowd, and you do your best, come what may, especially with the week that our nation has ahead, with all the tension, with all the rumors, with all the fears, with all the animosity, you keep your sight and you keep your trust in Jesus and receive from him all the goodness that he can give you. Can we pray together? Let me talk for one more minute to the two kinds of people in this crowd, whether you're watching online or you're here in person. There may be someone here today, because we've had a bunch, who've come to church hoping that there are spiritual answers because the physical world is so out of control. My invitation to you, I'm just the messenger, but my invitation to you is to turn your back on sin and self the way this man did, Give up on yourself, turn away from your sin, and entrust yourself to Jesus. Pray to Jesus, just as this man did, and say, Lord, have mercy on me. Jesus has never turned away any humble seeker. Every person who has ever come to Jesus with their need and with their sin has had it forgiven. Jesus said in the Gospel of John, that if anyone comes to him, he will by no means cast him out. So maybe this is your morning with all your struggles. Maybe you grew up in church, but you're not certain after all this that Jesus is actually in charge of you. Because that's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about having fond feelings toward him. I'm talking about have you come to the place in your life where you've put him in charge, where you have made him Lord? If not, would you call out to him in prayer? Can you borrow this man's prayer and confess yourself a sinner to Jesus and ask him to have mercy on you? Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who needs to do that, who has not trusted you as Savior, who has not heard from you spiritually, that faith has made them well, faith has saved them, I pray that they would do that right now, whether they're here or joining us online. If you do that this morning, would you take the card that's in your bulletin and fill it out and leave it in one of the baskets on your way out? If you're online, would you send me an email or send me the, this simple text message, the name Jesus, to 714-868-7258? We want to pray for you. We want to know the step of faith, the trust you put in the Lord this morning. And Christian, how's the pandemic treated you? What's it done with your relationship with Jesus? Are you closer or farther away? Every single one of us in relationship to the Lord is in a different spot today than we were when this crisis began. We're either closer or farther. If you've lost sight of him, maybe that's why you're here this morning. He is eager. He is welcoming. He is loving. He is joyful to receive those who come back to him, who trust him who summon up courage and start ignoring the crowd and keep shouting for him and step forward in faith to receive from him what nobody else can give him. Father, I pray that that would be true, that we, whatever comes, whatever we face, and we don't know, this year has taught us that, Lord, that we can have plans and resolutions and even good ideas of what a year may bring. But we're so frail, we're so feeble, we're so short-sighted. 
Draw us closer, Lord. Help us go more deeply in relationship with you. Help us to love and trust you more because of what we have endured this year. Help us keep our sight on you and to follow after you, praising and glorifying God. I ask it in Jesus' name. Cross point said, amen.